America's incredible prosperity was built atop a foundation of free markets and free people. We cannot allow left-wing ideologues to undermine that foundation. But with inflation on the rise and a struggling market, many in America's political class are attempting to recycle their failed socialist ideas. National Review's Capital Record podcast is standing in the gap, providing you with the arguments and analysis you need to defend our economic system. Financier and NRI trustee David Barnson hosts interviews with the nation's top business leaders, entrepreneurs, and financial commentators as they provide a practical and moral vindication of America's capitalist way of life. With guests such as Larry Kudlow, Steve Forbes, and Art Laffer, Capital Record invites you to tune in for top-level economic commentary you can't get anywhere else. Join the conversation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Should Mitch McConnell step aside, did Ron DeSantis help himself with his hurricane response? And will Republicans impeach Joe Biden? We'll discuss all this more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Philip Phil Klein, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors of this episode are Waterstone and the new CEI podcast, How the World Works. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, we had another really concerning event with Mitch McConnell, another freeze-up. He had one of these during a, a press conference at the Capitol several weeks ago, created a lot of consternation, but then the world moved on, and then he, the exact same thing happened at a press conference or an event down in Kentucky, froze up for about 30 seconds. McConnell staff maintains this is just lightheadedness. Doesn't look like that to the, the layman. That's, I don't think that's how someone reacts when they're lightheaded necessarily, but they got a doctor's note from the attending physician at the Capitol saying, yes, this is lightheadedness. He's been cleared for work otherwise. And people around McConnell say he is lucid otherwise and maintain that this has only happened to him twice. And it's just bad fortune has happened in, in such a public fashion twice in a row. But what do you make of it? I find it very hard to believe it's only happened twice. And it was the two times we saw him in public. I mean, just what are the uh, my odds? familiarity. Uh, yeah, what are the odds? And, and just my familiarity with with people who are of that age and and have those moments. You know, um, you know, maybe those were the only moments where he was technically you know on the clock. But um, if if he's having them this frequently on the clock, then I'm sure things are happening you know at home as well. And um, my heart goes out to him. Um, you know, it's it's very difficult um, when you're at this age because both continuing to work or ceasing to work um, both can be, you know, the, the, the kind of cause of a, of a mm-hmm. final break, uh, whether that's a, a break into senility or, or a total, you know, break from this mortal coil. Um, but it is clear that, that he is suffering from something that afflicts the very elderly whether that's, you know, slipping into senility or um, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or, you know, whatever else is going on, um, he's having it. And, uh, you know, we all have been, I think, on the editors outspoken about uh, Joe Biden's fitness Mm -hmm. since before he was elected. And I think it's only appropriate that uh, National Review yesterday uh, put out an editorial saying that, that McConnell has to step down. Uh, I think it's it's only fair that we did so. And, um, you know, I, I I give my regards to McConnell. He's had an amazing career. Uh, he need, I think he deserves for a moment to be, for that to be celebrated with dignity while he's still with us. 
and um, for him to attend to his, you know, f final personal spiritual affairs without the the burden of being the Senate leader. Um, that at least that's what I, I, I wish and hope for. And and like I've said on this podcast before, when we we've talked about Biden, this is this is a problem facing all institutions in the West, and and we saw that even the Catholic Church you know, sort of take a mm -hmm. leap on this oh, a decade ago with the retirement, the first modern retirement of a Pope uh, who did so in advance of, you know, a feared mental decline. So I think all institutions have to begin thinking about um, how to handle this sensitively. And it's very difficult because, of course, you know, there isn't just a strict age cutoff where this, this becomes inevitable. Um, but it is predictable. Uh, so anyway, my, my, my thoughts go out to McConnell and his family, and, uh, I hope they find a way to, to ease him through the, uh, a transition swiftly. So Phil, hopefully this is just lightheadedness as, as they say, and we should note that he did go on after this strange 30 minute pause. He did go on to answer other questions, the rest of the questions at this event, and then went on to a, a fundraiser where he sat down with Jim Banks, Senate candidate in Indiana, and, was apparently fine. But the, these two events are very concerning. And, and my take basically is since this really bad fall he had in March, he fell, broke a rib, had a concussion. He's had you know, some, some trouble walking or susceptibility to falls since he, he had a, about a polio as a, as a youngster. He's visibly aged. And again, people around McConnell say, well, he's completely lucid. But for me, that's a reason to... to go out under your own power now. And it doesn't have to be today. It doesn't have to be tomorrow. It doesn't have to be next week. But he should set the wheels in motion. This is probably something he's thought about, right? He's very thoughtful and shrewd about almost everything. So do it on, on your terms before something bad happens or, or there, there are uh, more humiliations to come. Give a great farewell speech. There's no reason I, I would think that he can't continue to serve as a as a senator, but just leadership is a more taxing position, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I think that, <clears throat> look, whatever you say about, I mean, I, I don't want to play uh, armchair doctor, but all we know is what we saw, which is that two times in within about a month, we saw a situation in which he's fielding questions from reporters, not particularly challenging questions, and he's had a total he's totally become frozen. Um, and you, that is communicating with reporters and other people is a huge part of the job in leadership. And just if you look at just what he has coming up in this fall, I mean, this month, we're going to have a government shutdown fight. Um, <clears throat> and Schumer's going to be out there pushing the democratic narrative um, on the government shutdown and echoing that. And the Republicans need a leader who could go up there and field questions and, and give and take and, and be able to counter Schumer on those issues. They need someone, if there's, you know, a deal that is, um, you know, in the offing, somebody needs to be able to lead a meeting of the Republican caucus and field questions from skeptical senators and, and explain why they should do a certain deal or not. I mean, we're, you know, we could talk about it later, but the whole idea of um, Biden impeachment is in the air. If, if Republicans go down that road, you're going to have a lot of questions and they're going to be a lot more difficult than questions he froze up on last time about such as, you know, are you going to run for re-election in 2026? So look, it, it's difficult. It's, you know, everyone, um, I, I'm sure everyone has had experiences with, you know, elderly relatives who you know that they just sort of reach that point. I mean, I have a I had a grandmother who lived till 101, and there was one point where she realized she couldn't live independently anymore and needed to, to live in a facility. And I, I remember her talking about simple daily tasks like changing a light bulb and how intellectually she knew how to do it. She 
her mind says that she could do it, but physically she was unable to do it. And it's tough to realize those sorts of things. But I mean, look, he's, he's, you don't want to sound crude, but he's in a very important position. This isn't a lifetime appointment. He's already been the longest serving Republican leader in the Senate. Uh, He reached that, or or any leader, sorry, any party leader in the Senate. He reached that. Longest serving senator from Kentucky. Yeah. So he's has a lot that he's already done, and there's no reason to hang on way past the date at which you can do the job effectively. And I'm sorry, like it sounds crude, but this there's too much riding on on things to be able to to you know just say oh well because we feel bad and we, we don't want to be crass that we need to sort of let him you know just hang on there um until things get really much worse i will just say as um um that also i mean MD mentioned biden and clearly a big part of the Republican uh, campaign in, in next year will be um, about Biden's age and his de- physical decline. Um, obviously, it's uh, it's a harder case to make um, give, if you run Trump, who's already in his upper 70s, but it becomes even harder if you're also hanging on to a Senate uh, majority le- or, or minority leader who's having a uh, situation. You know, yeah, I think this is uh, th- this is one reason that Nikki Haley was so harsh about this, calling the, the Senate a nursing home just for con- sheer consistency's sake. If nothing else, you know, she's been very harsh about Biden and also Trump. So you can't turn around and say, oh, you know, it's f- fine for McConnell to be there to age age ninety or however long he wants to serve. But Charlie, the the hypocrisy is kind of galling, right? I think this is the right take on. Uh, McConnell, but you ha- have Joe Biden, who is not suited to be a leader of, of the Senate at the moment, having the most uh, uh, taxing job, most powerful job on the planet. And we're supposed to believe that he can do this for another five and a half years or whatever it is until age 86. You know, that's that's what the Democratic Party wants us to swallow and believe. The White House press secretary makes him out as though he's, you know, it's impossible for people a third of his age to keep up with him because he's so vigorous. When, of course, we can see the public schedule. We've seen the reporting about how tired he is and how how careful they are about limiting his schedule. And we've seen him being president. We've seen him answering questions, sitting down for interviews, going to foreign event standing in front of the press corps. That line from Karine Jean-Pierre was utterly contemptuous toward her employers, which is the entire American public. Of course, he's not difficult to keep up with. Of course, he's not a workaholic. He is barely alive. I think that Trump and Biden and McConnell and Dianne Feinstein and others all need to go. And I know that this is sensitive. But I said last time, this is one of those times when judging people collectively or based on immutable characteristics, which age is one, is acceptable. One of those rare moments when it is acceptable. I think a, a good way to think about this would be to compare it to, say, an airline pilot. Now, of course, it's an imperfect analogy because the consequences aren't identical. But the question is not whether there are some people who seem to age without any effects, say Chuck Grassley. The question is not whether or not these incidents or episodes happen once or twice, once a year. The question is whether or not we should, as voters, when we have a choice, when we are invited to consider all aspects of a given candidate, take the risk. Now, the truth is that Joe Biden actuarially is not likely to survive a second term, let alone be compass mentis. Sure, he might, but is that a risk that you would willingly take. Truth is that Mitch McConnell 
statistically is likely to get worse, not better. This is likely to happen more frequently, not less frequently. Why take the risk? Diane Feinstein is, what, 89? Nearly 90? The last time she went out in public, she proved herself, in my estimation, to be incapable of doing the job of a senator. So it's not really... She's just a complete scandal at this point. Yeah, so it's not really a question of whether or not McConnell got a doctor's note or whether or not Biden looked good at this particular event or whether or not Dianne Feinstein was perky in a meeting about the defense budget. The question is, is it sensible for voters and political parties to keep people who are having episodes and showing signs of age in positions of stress and power that really matter within a government, our federal government, that is extremely powerful. And I think increasingly the answer to that question is no. Now, how that manifests itself is, of course, complicated. Joe Biden is the president. He won. He took the oath. He has those powers. They are his. That, for what it's worth, is a reason we should be alarmed by it, because we want to have a president who's in charge of the branch he was elected to run. You don't want a puppet. But he is the president, and if he's the nominee again and he wins, he will be the president again. And there's nothing you can really do about that by passing a constitutional amendment in the interim. But we do want to be able to say to people, don't. Don't run. Don't vote for him if he does run. And I think the same is true of McConnell. I don't think it's just a question of consistency, which is really important. I think the same argument we've been making about Biden has to apply to Mitch McConnell as well. That as people who talk all the time about politics and give our opinions and recommend to our listeners what we think and what we think that they should do, we think that Mitch McConnell's too old. That is a position uh, that we have come to. So I hate this because I think Mitch McConnell is one of the most important mm-hmm. and accomplished Republicans in the last half century. I would put him just below Ronald Reagan in terms of the effect that he has had on American politics. But yeah, he's that be, editorial uh, was correct. And it was correct, irrespective of what the Democrats do, whether they nominate Biden again or invite Diane Feinstein maybe to consider retiring. It is correct, irrespective of whether or not Republicans make the mistake of nominating Donald Trump again. It is the correct thing to call for because we want to have a government that is responsive and adaptive and dynamic. And I'm afraid that if this has now happened twice to Mitch McConnell, he is demonstrating that he's too old for the job. So, MBDX, a question to you. We will hear from Mitch McConnell by the end of the year that one way or the other, he's going to be stepping aside as leader of the Senate Republican Caucus, yes or no? Yes, we'll hear him say he has plans to transition by the end of the year. At least I hope so. Phil Klein. Yes, assuming this happens again, I think that a third time will be hard to to avoid the reality. Charlie. I think the answer is yes, and I don't think it needs to happen for a third time. I think there are three reasons for this. One, I think his own party is going to prevail upon him to do it. There are people within the Senate who understand that it is important per se that the Republicans have a leader who does not present this risk. Second, I think the Republican Party more broadly is going to say to him, how on earth can we run against Joe Biden if they show this clip every time we mention it? Uh, And third, I actually think Mitch McConnell is a pretty smart guy. Uh, This will be spun for the public, but he knows what happened. You can see the look on his face when it happens. It's scary. He's embarrassed by it. I don't think he is going to want to be remembered like that, and I think Mm -hmm. he's going to step down as a result. Yeah, I'm going to make it unanimous. Yes, I think Republican senators, almost all of them, are going to give him a a lot of running room and and, – to, to uh, come up with the how to how to do this uh, on his own, I think kind of pressuring him certainly publicly wouldn't work and would backfire. There's there been reports today that you have some inveterate McConnell critics within the caucus talking about you know calling a special meeting to address this. 
None of that is going to work. It's going to have to be McConnell making the decision. And as Charlie says, this is a public-spirited guy. He, uh, one reason he, he has been so effective as, as leader and been able to hold his caucus together uh, <clears throat> with uh, uh, amazing consistency is, is he, he thinks of his, uh, his colleagues first. And I, I think that that ethic will apply again here and he'll make the right call. With that... Let's hear from our first sponsor of this episode, Waterstone. When Patricia tried to donate to a conservative organization through her donor-advised fund, her request was denied. Why? Because they said she was trying to give to a hate group. That's why she switched to Waterstone, a donor-advised fund dedicated to upholding Judeo-Christian values. Waterstone is unique in the world of donor-advised funds. It accepts gifts of cash as well as real estate, business interest, oil and gas, and more. They can help you receive an immediate tax deduction, avoid capital gains tax, and make a difference for the charity of your choosing. With this charitable pool trust, you can even generate a lifetime income stream from your charitable giving. Waterstone strictly adheres to a Christian statement of faith, including a pro-life declaration, and does not give to charities that contradict those values. Waterstone is trusted by so many men and women of conviction that they give $10 million per month and charitable grants. They can work with you or your financial advisor to make a giving strategy that fits your needs. Contact Waterstone's giving strategies team today. For more information, by visiting waterstone.org. That's waterstone.org. So, Charlie, we had this hurricane hit the so-called Big Bend in Florida. Was not. It was quite a strong storm, but not quite as catastrophic as advertised. Perhaps in part because it was hitting a relatively uninhabited part of the state. Ron DeSantis has gotten pretty high marks for his response, even some um, mainstream outlets are giving him credit. The FEMA administrator said in an interview, it's amazing how Florida was able to get these these borrowed utility resources from other states to, to get the power up and running quickly again. So it looks like another highly competent response from Florida and its governor. Will this make a difference in terms of his political standing in the 2024 race? It ought to make a difference to his political standing in the 2024 race. He's really good at this. This is what DeSantis is good at. He's not particularly charismatic. He doesn't really like people. He doesn't have a voice that you would sit and listen to all day. But he's a really good executive. He's a really good administrator. And yes, Florida has put a lot of systems into place that he inherited. But having lived here under both Governor Scott and Governor DeSantis, I can say that DeSantis is even better than Scott. And that's high praise because Rick Scott was really good at administration too, especially during hurricanes. But DeSantis is on top of this stuff. This is what he likes. If you look back to COVID, you will remember these exchanges with reporters where he would talk about page 17, line 9, appendix 4 of a report on hospitalization rates or some drug that was being tested. And he had sat there the night before Mm -hmm. and read the whole thing. That's who he is. He's not Bill Clinton, who was extremely smart, don't get me wrong, but who really thrived when dealing with humans. Yeah. DeSantis the likes that, to read, he likes to master things, and he's done that. Yeah, with the, I, I hate to say it, Charlie, but the thing about Clinton was that he could do both. I mean, he, sure. he would stay up, you know, doing some other things, but also reading policy papers, but then had the uh, those incredible people skills too. Right, right. But that's what brought him alive. That's why his eyes mm-hmm. lit up in yep. ways good and bad. But DeSantis doesn't have that. What he does have is a mastery of detail and a real desire to... To lead, and I, I think this is important. Uh, this is what a president is supposed to be. A president is not supposed to be the Pope. A president is not supposed to be the Svengali pulling all of the strings of American life and economic activity. A uh, president's supposed to be an executive and an administrator. This is part of the job. It's not the whole job, but it's an important part of the job. We're in the middle of a primary season in which voters are expected to look at the various candidates and decide which one they would like. Now, there is a lot more to it than hurricane response, of course. There's policy, there's affability, there's electability, 
But this should be a mark in DeSantis's column. I suspect it will help him a little bit. It's not going to change the race ineluctably, but it is going to help him a little bit because this has provided a perfect contrast between DeSantis and Trump. Trump's behavior, as you might expect, mm-hmm. over the last few days has been awful. Appalling, Selfish, yeah. distracting, and... DeSantis has done his job well in front of the cameras, and better yet, he has done his job well in front of the cameras while explicitly repudiating the idea that this hurricane was about him or Trump or the primary or Republicans or Democrats. Some journalist asked him this question, and he said, that's not my concern. I'm not concerned with Donald Trump right now. I'm concerned with this. And I think that makes him look good. Whether or not it will matter is anyone's guess. Yeah, MBD, I'm afraid being a competent governor just doesn't count for for much. He may have helped himself a little bit at the margins here. But there's a really notable contrast between uh, how how this was handled in Florida and the wildfires, um, devastating wildfire in Hawaii. Now, different, different event. Um, You know, Florida is very well equipped to handle hurricanes, which, you know, happened several times a season where this was a uh, kind of once in a a lifetime, once in a hundred year event in Hawaii. But the the Biden administration's lack of attention to it, you know, that initial no comment, the trip out there, which, which wasn't so great, and he fell asleep at at one point, and the local officials, who are all Democrats, by the way, it's it's um, the, the the threads are being still pulled here to un- unravel what happened. But it seems to be rank and shameful and disgusting misconduct of the sort that would be you know top of the headline type uh, news if this were if this had happened in a Republican state under a, a Republican presidential administration. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Where where's the celebrity saying that uh, Joe Biden doesn't care about Hawaiian people? Um, you know the um, even the New York Times kind of was taking uh, the White House to tasks, describing the the no comment as inexplicable and tone deaf, um, and you know using words like the lethargy um, when when describing his response. Um, yeah, I, I think Joe Biden hasn't paid close attention. I think he's been politically vulnerable. I know that there's been a lot of criticism at National Review of comparing the rhetoric and the monetary commitments made to Ukraine uh, and to Hawaii. But in a way, Joe Biden invites those comments when he makes when he gives the same right when he this week he finally said or, or just a few days ago he said whatever it takes. Uh, for Maui, uh, which is the same language he uses when talking about the war in Ukraine. Um, And it was language that he most notably was not using when the fires were raging themselves. Um, And uh, yeah, it just seems like the White House, um, you know, in some ways, the, the previous segment leads into this one, which is that the White House just assured people that FEMA was on top of the disaster in Maui and was sort of like saying like, hey, the government operates whether Joe Biden is out there as a mascot for its efforts or not. Um, but that's not how people in Maui felt. They, they felt that their concerns were not being taken seriously in Washington um, and the communication, the lack of communication matters and the lack of communication is partly a function of Biden's low energy and reduced capacity as like a human being. So I think Ron DeSantis should absolutely make, um, his surrogate should make this a huge point of contrast that Ron DeSantis has the energy, the youth, the vigor, you know, to mm-hmm. kind of borrow a, a JFK era phrase <laughs> um to meet a crisis when it when it actually happens whereas joe biden is hitting the snooze button and and re and telling you oh fema's on it mm-hmm. um yeah i mean it, it to me this was this was a, a good week for desantis because it was like a, a a pause from the campaign is pure showmanship and a return to 
what made DeSantis viable in the first place, which is that he's an extremely competent governor. Um, he takes bold action and is decisive and gets good results. And so, um, so, so Phil, a hallmark of the coverage now of any disaster, it's true of the wildfires, true of this hurricane, is it's caused by climate change. And it, it may be that at the margins, the fact that the earth is warming does make such events worse, but there are also a lot of co- confounding variables that are, that are never accounted for in the coverage. And there was a CNN anchor who was saying the other day that there are a whole bunch of people in Florida, you know, this Big Bend area who've never been, never been vulnerable to, to hurricanes before, never had to deal with hurricanes before. And Ryan Mao, who's a great, um, am I saying his last name wrong? Great follow on Twitter for all weather and climate related stuff pointed out in 1896, you know, prior to the advent of the automobile, there was a Cedar Keys hurricane, also 125 maximum sustained winds that that hit just south of, of where this one hit. And then I got a little curious about, you know, Florida hurricanes and I was Googling around and there is the, the Labor Day hurricane, great Labor Day hurricane of 1935. That was the strongest hurricane uh, recorded to hit the continental United States at, at the time that had two landfalls in Florida, one in Cedar Keys, you know, right, again, right near where this one hit. And then I found some hurricane site that, um, I uh, was focusing on Cedar Keys, and every time it's been hit by a tropical storm and, or a hurricane, and it's been you know dozens of times. So again, it may be at the margins; th- these events are are getting worse, but it's not as though it's a new thing that Florida is experiencing hurricanes. When the first uh, known hurricane, there are obviously others before that, uh, hit uh, Florida in 1523. Yeah, I mean the Lake Okeechobee hurricane in the 1920s was absolutely devastating in Florida, and you know I mean. The, the Miami's football team is literally named the Hurricanes. It, it wasn't named that, you know, two years ago. Um, the, the, right. the hurricane drink in New Orleans didn't start uh, after Katrina. Um, and look, if, if you look at the, the issue of the wildfires in um, uh, Hawaii, this is the, there were just such a series of failures at the local level that it's just absurd to try to blame, blame this on uh, climate change. Um, I mean, you had a situation in which, first, in terms of preventative nature, there were all these invasive grasses that people were warning were f- flammable and could um, create basically a tinderbox for any. F- any if any fire broke out and the officials sort of igno- just ignored warnings to remove them they once the tragedy hit the um the officials didn't sound sirens they took hours to release water to fight the fire in those crucial early stages where you might have been able to nip it in the bud they incredibly blocked the only access highway out, so people who were trying to flee uh, could only get out if they violated the law and went around police barricades to get out, while those that were um, um, sent back and f- listened to cops were sent back into a smoldering fire. Um, so there were just so many errors that this is even, you know— more ridiculous than ever to try to blame this event on on global warming um, or climate change, and the uh, you know Biden response is just totally insane. Because let's be honest, like these natural disasters mostly are handled by state and local officials, and those are the ones who are going to make it better in the worst. But the you know for decades the the in the media age the president has taken on the role of somebody who has to sort of command and project that the federal government is going to do whatever it can that they really care and they're empathetic. That's what Bush was sort of mocked for. Yeah, and, it, and yeah, it did. Yeah, it didn't help George W. Bush that the Democratic officials in New Orleans and Louisiana were completely incompetent, yeah. right? And so. You know, and then you know Biden's 
supposed to be this empathetic, the empathizer in chief. But what he does, the worst thing that you do when you're empathizing, you know, if, if you're consoling someone whose loved one has cancer, you don't say like, well, I know how you feel because, you know, one time my, you know, my dad had something biopsied and luckily it turned out to be benign. I mean, but that's what he's basically doing. He yeah. Lightning, lightning strike, lightning strike at his home on on this one, yeah. right? And there was a uh, there was a fire in the kitchen yeah. <laughs> that and was it, put out in twenty minutes, and that was was but, confined to the kitchen. But they were worried that his precious Corvette could have gotten damaged. So he understands mm-hmm. what it must be for people to lose their homes and loved just, ones. Just think of the classified records that would have been lost <laughs> if the the fire had uh, <laughs> been more extensive. Yeah, but it is an so. Let me let me double um, standard for anyone that lived through the breathless coverage of Katrina and how it was a racist hurricane that swept through the world and, and revealed everything that was wrong about George Bush. So, Charlie, let's go ask a question to you. I'm on the record thinking this is an unlikely scenario, but just for, for fun, let's say it's what, what happens. What would be your level of confidence that if Ron DeSantis were the nominee, this time around for Republicans, and Biden is the the Democratic nominee, what would be your level of confidence that DeSantis would beat Biden from zero to 10? Zero, you think it'd be a lock for Joe Biden. 10, a lock for Ron DeSantis. Well, can I do percentages? Because it always gets screwy. Sure. With All right. Yeah, that's fine. 10. Yeah. That's um, fine. I would say that it would be a toss-up 50-50. I've written before that I think that Trump will lose, but that Biden is the front runner and the favorite, nevertheless. That could change if we have a recession or if something bad and public and undeniable happens to Joe Biden that really does highlight his age in a way that is illustrative. But I think that there is a lot of baggage still around the GOP that will in part, remain irrespective of the nominee. And I think DeSantis would go into it about 50-50. And I think, I, I agree with Charlie. Maybe I give DeSantis just a little bit more of a weighted coin in a coin toss. You know, maybe maybe he's at like 52? 52 to, 52 to 48. Uh, um, because of youth and um, just the polls on Biden's age are just so bad that I just think um, a lot of independent voters would very quickly habituate themselves to a, a competent-seeming young candidate. Phil Klein? I'd, I'm going to go higher. I'm going to say 65% chance. <laughs> and the reason and why... The percentage wins. Yes. And I, I would basically... I'm just a little more optimistic that the youth issue is going to play a bigger role um, in that because I think that um, Biden's going to continue to decline. And I think that last time he benefited from the fact that he was able to use COVID as an excuse to not have to stress himself that much. But DeSantis, say what you want about him. You know, we've criticized him as a candidate, but he's a hard worker and he will be, he won't be out hustled by Joe Biden. He'll be in multiple events a day, crisscrossing the country, and Biden will look half dead. And honestly, I just don't see how, when you're talking about swing voters at the end of the day, I just don't really um, see people voting for Biden. I mean, obviously they could for all of the reasons um, outlined, but I I think that that, we underestimate how much of a factor it would be to to see a younger candidate against Biden. Yeah, I agree with Phil. I think they've done a pretty good number on DeSantis already. I think there's some polls of the general public that have... DeSantis's uh, favorable, unfavorable ratings really suffered the last couple of months. But just the the contrast on age alone, I think, would be pretty big. Biden is just really, really weak. I mean, the numbers are are horrid. It's hard to beat any incumbent. But I'm going to say it'd be a 60% chance that Ron DeSantis would beat 
Joe Biden in 2024. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor. This episode is listeners of National Review Podcast. You already have all the riveting political commentary and news analysis you need, but good news. There's a new podcast featuring author, commentator, and our old friend, Kevin Williamson, offering a fresh perspective on something we all do, work to make a living. That's right. Kevin has teamed up with the Competitive Enterprise Institute to make a new show called How the World Works. And instead of trying to unravel the mysteries of the universe, it's a look at how the world actually works. Each episode, Kevin has an intimate conversation with a notable guest where they discuss the jobs they've had, why work matters, the role of work in our economy and social lives, and policy ideas for helping workers. After all, work involves a lot more than hours put in and paychecks cash. So be sure to listen to How the World Works wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org slash podcast to find the latest episodes of the show. Please check it out. So Phil... We have Kevin McCarthy continuing to talk about an impeachment inquiry uh, into Joe Biden. This is not this is something he's been talking about for a while now. It appears he doesn't have the votes or he would just go ahead and do it, presumably. But there are some relatively moderate Republicans from swing districts that don't think that this would help them. So there's there's also been some chatter that maybe McCarthy will go the Nancy Pelosi route and just create an impeachment inquiry without having a formal vote, something that Republicans screamed bloody murder about when when she did it. But in Washington, everyone ends up being a hypocrite on process sooner rather than later. What do you make of it? So I think that there are two things to think about. I mean, one, we shouldn't... Um lose sight of the fact that House Republicans have uncovered some seriously troubling stuff about um, Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. Um, Clearly, we now know that um, Joe Biden's involvement in Hunter Biden's um, influence peddling operation was much more than he let on. Um, to voters. And so I think Republicans should be commended for that. McCarthy is trying to make the argument that, of course, that there's a limit to how much they could do without having the power that an impeachment inquiry would give you uh, to get people to testify, subpoena certain documents to get jurisdiction over certain aspects of an investigation. Um However, there's also the political aspect of it. And in recent memory, um, you know, the Clinton and Trump impeachments mainly, um, we've seen where impeachments kind of have backfired the, on the party doing the impeachment. They're not seen as sort of a shocking thing that they would have been at a, at a certain uh, another time period it's seen as something that's almost becoming more routine that the party in opposition does to the the sitting president. And I think that the difficulty is that once you say that there's an impeachment inquiry, you kind of have to go through with an impeachment process because, you know, if there's an impeachment inquiry without an impeachment then yeah, you get it, exculpatory. It, yeah. Then he says, oh, well, Republicans did an impeachment inquiry. They didn't find anything. They couldn't get a vote for impeachment. So there is a bit of a trap here that's involved for something that we know that is never going to, um, he's the Democratic Senate is never going to vote to convict Biden. So it seems to me that what you want is to continue investigating Biden and revealing more and more of his corruption and having uh, voters be able to assess and see the the level of corruption and efforts to cover it up that yeah. followed. And you get kind of the political benefit of that without everything of impeachment. I think yeah, one- and they've made a lot of they've made a lot of progress in, in that regard. Uh, Charlie, so the latest thing is I hadn't focused on this and didn't realize we already knew about this because of the Hunter laptop, which turns out to be a you know absolute treasure trove uh, kind of roadmap 
to mix metaphors to the, the, the Biden family corruption. But as Vice President Joe Biden was running a couple of pseudonymous email accounts, which is kind of suspicious. Apparently, NARA has these emails, and there's a lawsuit now to get to them. But it's a, it's another kind of suggestive thing and a whole list of them. And suggestive is probably too weak a word for some of the stuff we've learned. Yeah, well, it's suggestive for a couple of reasons. The first reason it's suggestive is that it was decided in the first place that the vice president should be emailing anyone under a pseudonym. Why? What's the argument for it? How does it interact with his responsibilities under FOIA and his moral responsibilities to be transparent? I think going forward, American citizens ought to require that their legislators at the federal and state levels introduce into our freedom of information statutes penalties for those who willingly evade them. There was another good example of this this week with Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, who was using Greek symbols interspersed with the Western alphabet to evade oversight. But the second reason that it is suggestive is that if those emails are released, which they should be, and if they show communications between Joe Biden, his son, and his son's business partners that are traced back to Joe Biden, irrespective of what they contain or whether there is a clear quid pro quo, they contradict Biden's prior insistence that he has never had any communication with his son and his business partners. In and of itself, they would prove that to have been a lie. So this this matters enormously. And I would just ask the question that I've asked before. Why? Why do we have a network of shell companies moving millions of dollars between them with the president or his family as the ultimate destination? Why do we have pseudonymous email accounts exchanging emails with Joe Biden's son and his foreign business partners? What is the possible innocent explanation for that? I'm genuinely open to it, but I can't see one. I mean, on Phil's point, it would be a, an enormous mistake for Republicans to jump ahead here. It would be an enormous mistake to open an impeachment inquiry and then not to impeach. It would be an enormous mistake to allow the public rhetoric to get out of whack, either with the underlying facts or with where the caucus is in the House and the Senate. But it has not been a mistake, in my view, to raise the I-word at least at the margins, because if we can prove what is being alleged here, it is an impeachable offense. Mm -hmm. So MBD, take the bait and answer the rhetorical questions that Charlie was just asking. Why? Why secret emails? Why, why shell companies? Why, why, why? <laughs> I'm supposed to come up with innocent Jeez, <laughs> um, I mean, like... What's the most innocent answer? I mean, like, I can't even think of one. The most innocent answer is maybe like Joe Biden, Joe Biden frequents massage parlors or something. <laughs> doesn't want people knowing these appointments. I, I don't know. Pays them through um, shell companies. It's, <laughs> it's totally ludicrous. It's no, it's totally ludicrous. And we have we have evidence from um, the Biden laptop that um, of Hunter Biden complaining that his finances and his father's finances are intermixed, that that Hunter is complaining that he's paying the bills for, the for everything for his father. Right? And so if Joe Bi if if Hunter Biden is in receipt of millions of dollars from shady Ukrainians and Russians in Ukraine and Chinese people in China, and he's paying for things for his father, that is that is enough. That is enough of a connection. 
to to be a tremendous problem, right? Like, I mean, first of all, if if he's in receipt of these things corruptly, just for the quote unquote what the White House says, like the appearance of access, that's enough to condemn Hunter Biden, and that's enough for the Justice Department to go after him um, in a real way. But if 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 Hunter is then paying for things, whether it's houses or you know, expensive meals or trips or anything for his father that's of serious value. I, that's enough to to establish a corrupt uh, flow of money. Um, so I, I I don't I agree with Phil that it's better politically for the Republicans to just uncover as many of the details and establish as much of a fact pattern in the press as possible as the election goes on. Because the question of the propriety of impeachment is one that will be thrown in the face of the Republican candidate, whoever they are, that emerges, mm-hmm. or all the Republican can- candidates. And I actually, I think the public has lost faith in the impeachment process. Yeah, um, you, you raise a good point. This, it's it's going to be really awkward for, for uh, I mean, how can you be a Republican candidate when the House is impeaching Biden and not say, <laughs> you know, this is the right thing to do? <laughs> Right, I mean that that would be really right. tricky. I do think that's a double-edged right. and, sword, though, and I'm sure we're not disagreeing. But sure. if the impeachment case that has been brought is self-evidently weak or is insufficiently scandalous to convey to the average voter, it will be a problem for the Republican candidate. Mm-hmm. But if the Republicans do their homework and they build this up to the point at which it is yeah. obvious to everyone, that's going to be a massive boon to the Republican yeah, yeah, candidate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so let's go uh, exit question to you, Phil Klein. Double-barreled exit question. Let's go percentage again. Give us a percentage odds that Republicans will end up impeaching Joe Biden one way or the other. Zero, nah, forget it. It's just, it's just talk. 100%, it's a dead central lock that Joe Biden is getting impeached. I think I'd say about 70% that it, they'll impeach him. I just feel like the... Once this is sort of in the air, it's just sort of the natural tendency is to, it, the modern politics will be to just push in that area. I think that so, McCarthy won't have a choice. So, Charlie, we got a 70% on the board. I think it is slightly lower, maybe 60 40, but it's certainly above 50%. MBD. <laughs> 65, 65, 35. Yeah, I think we're all we're all circling the same area. I I, I might say sixty or, or sixty five. Obviously, the, just the block on it is he can't lose many votes, and the only reason he's not going to do it is because they they don't have the votes. But um, the the will of like ninety five percent of the caucus is is the, and the logic of it is going to be to go ahead. And of course, you have Donald Trump really uh, pressuring from the outside. Second half of the double barrel question, Phil, rate the Republican handling of the investigations into the Biden family influence peddling and finances from zero to 10. Zero, it's been abysmal. 10, it's been perfect. I'd say probably eight. Um, It's been, uh, I think it's, they've done a really good responsible job to this point. Charlie. I might even go higher than that. I think it's a nine. I don't understand the impatience here. There is time. It's important to get this right. Republicans always run up against serious headwinds whenever they make any accusations because those accusations are either ignored or downplayed or described as having been debunked. The GOP has put sensible and trustworthy and relatable people in charge of this and has ensured that it has not got too far out over its skis. I'm, I'm giving a nine. MBD. Ooh, it's interesting. I'm giving it a six. Mm. I think they've done very well on, on holding. It's very, it's, it's a tough balancing act because at once they've held their horses, they haven't, you know, fired the shot too early, but on the other side, I mean, enough has kind of, I think people who live in the conservative press, not just us, but, you know, a lot of our readers, 
a lot of, you know, people who tune into the Daily Wire or Newsmax or the Blaze every day, I think they're already at like a 10. Joe Biden is totally corrupt. He should be impeached. Like they're banging for blood already. And I think that creates a, a, this political difficulty mm-hmm. where now Trump can pressure the Republicans to, again, fire too early. So, so I think the... I think the investigation has been good, but I'm not sure the political management mm-hmm. of the scandal has been uh, up to snuff. I'm with where Phil is. I'm an N8. The the subtraction of the two points is for the the reasons you underline MBD a little bit out over their skis. The the impeachment talk I don't think is is great. But just in terms of the the investigation and and how much they've uncovered and how far they've gotten the ball down the road, it's really truly. Extraordinary, and they should be very proud of, of what they've done so far. With that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus. Signing up for NR Plus is a really important way to support our journalism. We need people to pay a little bit, not a lot, just a little bit to read our content. I know it's tempting, you know, I, I do it uh, despite myself on some other websites to try to get around a metered paywall and kind of cheat cheat your way to reading content without paying for it. I, I know the temptation. Please, please, please resist it. It's really important to us as a sheer business matter that people pay for our content. Again, you don't have to pay a lot. We have great introductory offers going at any given moment. So if there's a, a small little voice in your conscience saying, maybe I shouldn't be doing this, maybe I should pony up, please, please Listen to that voice and join tens of thousands of your fellow National View readers as a member of NR+. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, your golf game is getting more proficient as we speak. As we speak. <laughs> well, maybe not as, as we speak is Michael's a bit strong. on the golf course. We need a rest stop Charlie equivalent. No, I, no, I, think, no. uh, I think, MBD, you need to take a lesson from Donald Trump. Like, it didn't didn't you beat Phil Mickelson's score on your local course just, just the other day? No, 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 no. As we speak, you know, the, the real golf, uh, the golf delusion is that, like, just, just buying new clubs online is making your game better. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's what I'm doing. No, it's just uh, I'm enjoying the last couple weeks of summer – I've kind of been like a little get the last licks of sports in for the Doherty family uh, on our vacation, which we came back from last week. My brothers-in-law went out. We went out for a round of golf in South Jersey. Uh, I had my best game ever in a in a great scramble match uh, between the t- the two teams of us, um, and I and I helped keep us within one uh, one stroke of winning the match. Unfortunately, we lost. Uh, and my son uh, has spent his last week of summer at soccer camp for the first time. He's really loving it. And I'm really loving watching him and uh, grow and as a competitor and also really enjoying uh, his trash talk about other uh, players awesome. <laughs> when he gets in the car. The are you going to try to get him into some like Australian rules sports? What are, what are the things you follow? It's not quite football. Yeah. There's a, there is a Gaelic football club up around here. I'm not, wow. I'm not sure. I, I really wish hurling were more available, but that's more, um, <laughs> you have to kind of cross the bridge where there's like, where it's like 30% of the residents are Irish immigrants to get that. Um, uh, so what we'll see. Awesome. So Phil, you've been a little less active sitting around watching 1970s thriller movies. Yeah. <clears throat> Actually, Armin White, our, um, critic was tweeting about Brian De Palma and his movie, the fury, which is about, um, a CIA agent who his son gets kidnapped by the government for his psychic abilities. So he works with another female, um, gifted sort of female psychic to try to track him down. And, um, it, it was really interesting. Armin White was touting this movie. So I figured I'd check it out. And it was really interesting. And actually, um, it was clear that Stranger Things, the Netflix series, just stole a significant amount of the plot from this uh, this movie. So then I went ahead and I watched another De Palma uh, thriller from the 70s about 
Siamese twins um, with a young Margot Kidder, better known as Lois Lane in the Superman movies. Um, uh, and that was really interesting. So then I, I watched um, an um, Clute, which was the um, part of the Alan Pakula's loosely named Paranoia trilogy. Alan Pakula is most well known for directing the movie adaptation of All the President's Men, and he also made The Parallax View, which was a great 1970s era conspiracy movie. Um, and one of his other movies that's sort of referred to is Clute, um, which was uh, another interesting, gritty 70s thriller drama. So it, it was sort of a fun tour back in time from a, a, a very cynical uh, part in American history. So, Charlie, the college football season has started, and it hasn't been so much fun for you so far. Well, the Gators opened it all up last night and were terrible against Utah and lost 24-11 to 11 and made mistake after mistake after mistake. But the bigger picture is that college football is back, and that means that football is back. Like you, Rich, I've been counting down the days, partly inspired by the depressing spectacle that is the New York Yankees, but partly by my great love of football. And now it is here. And we are only, is it a week away? Less than a week away from the NFL as well. Yeah, Thursday. Thursday Thursday night. night, What's the the Thursday night game? It's Chiefs. Hmm. I'm not sure. Chiefs someone. That's okay. Either way, I am. It's because I'm so focused on the game, of course, that everyone is focused on, which is the Jaguars trip to the Colts for the opener in Indianapolis. America's team, <laughs> the Jacksonville Jaguars. <laughs> but the line. football is back. That's the main thing. And if the Gators aren't great, well, at least I get to watch them. Here, here. So I am almost finished with a book called The Origins of the English Parliament, 924 to 1327. This is not exactly a, a page turner. I would not highly recommend it to, uh, to many people. But it just highlights just how extraordinary this institution of parliament is is probably the, the most important institution in the Western world outside of the church, I guess I would, I would say. And it's just amazing. A thousand years ago, give or take, you, you had uh, councils and, and proto-parliaments and, and parliaments saying no to kings, to English kings, when they wanted to raise taxes. You had shire elections, you know, 800 years ago or so. And it, it just goes to how uh, incredibly well-grounded and ancient um, this this institution, which has had a, um, a big influence on our system as well, uh, how, how well-grounded and, and ancient it is. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD! What's your pick? My pick is Wilfred Riley's piece on the website today, The Maui Disaster Narrative is All Wrong. Uh, Riley is just a great debunker of uh, conventional unwisdom, and he's no different here, uh, pointing out that this is not a climate change story. Um, This is a story about incompetence. So check him out. Phil, what's your pick? My pick is uh, Jim Garrity's oeuvre of uh, coverage from Ukraine. Mm -hmm. He's been over in Kiev and um, in the area and filing a lot of daily dispatches from what he's seeing on the ground. Um, And, you know, Jim's just such a talented writer. We're so lucky to have him is he could just sort of dive into any subject and make it informative and entertaining and compelling. Um, And, you know, he could write daily horse race coverage or go to Ukraine and write, uh, coverage about what's going on with the war effort and what's going on on the home front uh, there. So I think that you should check out his author page and, and read a lot of his work from the, the past week. Charlie? I'm going to take Noah Rothman's piece from, I believe, yesterday, pointing out that Joe Biden has, in effect, been shamed into talking suddenly about Maui by Ron DeSantis's performance 
dealing with the hurricane in Florida, Joe Biden gets away with almost everything that he does. The press is not interested in him. But from time to time, there is sufficient pressure on him to prompt him to reverse course. Another good example of this was the acknowledgement of one of his grandchildren. And I'd say the debacle that was the Afghanistan withdrawal. The press pushed and pushed and pushed, and eventually he was obliged to do something about it. This has been another example, and it shows why it is important to have small-D democratic pressure on our leaders. So my pick is MBD's piece, Prepared for the Fall, on the possible decline and stalling out of the Chinese model, which is something that some people are optimistic about, but... MBD characteristically makes it into an alarming story, but does it incisively and compellingly as always. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and you rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Review Magazine. It's strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Waterstone and CEI. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. Enjoy the long weekend, everyone.